So in starting this journey on the 11 benefits of metta, I actually want to hit rewind and go back to the beginning of the metta story. How was metta birthed as a practice and a teaching through the heart of the Buddha? This is a story that we haven't told yet, this retreat, and uh, very archetypal story in spiritual traditions. This happens to be the Buddhist version of it. So, a long time ago, in a land far away, 2,550-something years ago to be exact, in ancient India, uh, there were a group of monastic practitioners. They were practicing with their teacher. Their teacher happened to be the Buddha. It was in the middle of the year, and it was almost time for the rains. Now, in most places in India, it monsoons. And so the rains are huge, and it's very hard to travel. Uh, To this day, it's still difficult to travel during monsoon in India. And so they had what they called a rains retreat, a three-month rains retreat, where the practitioners stopped traveling, and they would stay in one place and do retreat. And so it was almost time for the rains retreat. And on this particular year, this particular group of monks, the Buddha was training them in concentration practice. And so he gave them their instructions and he sent them off to find a suitable place to do retreat. Now, unfortunately, Spirit Rock didn't exist yet. And so they had to go find some simpler huts. They went up to the foothills of the Himalayas and found a village where... Um, conditions seemed pretty good. It was a village of people who were interested in supporting them in their practice with not just food, but building simple huts called kutis uh, so that they could practice uh, this concentration in solitude with support. Seemed like things were pretty good. So let's talk about the foothills of the Himalayas. I live in the foothills of the Sierra Nevada in California. I live at 3,000 feet. The foothills of the Himalayas are 8,000 feet. And I think it's kind of interesting that this group of practitioners chose the foothills of the Himalayas to do a rains retreat because it rains harder there during rains retreat. And so they found this place and they settled in and things were looking pretty good. They started their practice. Here's what they didn't know. What they didn't know was that there were a community of devas inhabiting the very same forest in which their huts were. So devas, I'm not asking you to believe in devas. You can totally take in the story without believing in devas. But, you know, could we be open to there's more than the eye can see? And so sometimes in this culture, the equivalent would be angels. But the unseen the unseen forces, the unseen energies were living there. And the devas thought that the monks were just coming for a visit. You know, like relatives come for a visit, they stay for a weekend, maybe a week, and then they leave. You know, and you can welcome them in warmly and be a gracious hostess, and then they go. Well, the monks were staying for three months. (laughs) So after a period of time, the devas got irritated. This invasion of personal space, right? (laughs) Have you had that here? (laughs) 90 people, (laughs) invasion of personal space. And so they wanted the practitioners to leave. What did they do? 
First, they created scary sounds in the forest. Any of us that have backpacked, done vision quest, or even done walking meditation on the land late at night, and you hear that rustle, 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 ah, you know, startle response, to see if they could get the monks off their seat, stop the practice. Didn't work. Their concentration was too strong. So then they tried stinky smells. They, they manifested stinky smells. Okay? That didn't work either. The concentration was too strong. Then, as the story goes, they managed to produce visualizations in the minds of these practitioners that were scary. That worked. And the monastics left their huts, ran down the foothills of the Himalayas, is how I imagine it, which I'm sure is not quite accurate but ran down the foothills of the Himalayas to where the Buddha was saying and said, teacher, teacher, my practice is not working. This is not a good place to do a retreat. You know, you have to set us up somewhere else with a different practice. And the Buddha said, friends, friends, wait, not so fast. I think that's the perfect place to practice. And have I got a practice for you? Loving kindness. This is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. Let them be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied, unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways, peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, not proud and demanding in nature. Let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove wishing in gladness and in safety, may all beings be at ease. You're saying, friends, bring your basic integrity in your heart and in your actions into the foreground and wish, just like we're doing here. And let that wisdom flow. And so the monastics went back up the hill to continue their concentration practice now through the form of loving kindness. And the most interesting thing happened. What happened was those devas that were bothering them, that wanted them to go go away, that were their difficult, well, not difficult people, but difficult energies transformed the relationship to those practitioners. And in fact, transformed so much so that they weren't just not making scary noises. They weren't refraining just from smelly smells. They were no longer producing scary images in the mind. They became the practitioner's allies. Supports, unseen, quiet, benevolent supports in their practice. It's a powerful story. When we're doing this practice and the difficulties come, as we have been calling in, welcoming, embracing this day, can we transform that difficulty into an ally? Through the force of the practice, through the force of our basic integrity, through the wishes, through the wisdom, through grace. Can we be on the lookout for allies where there was difficulty? This is another form of the difficulties are the gifts. And it's not just our internal practice. I was very pleased that Larry brought in this morning in the teaching uh, another one of my personal heroes, um, Ansang Suu Kyi, 
Same thing. She had difficult ones. So difficult that she was unable to see her family. She was unable to be present at her husband's death. She was so committed to democracy and truth-telling and freedom and all of its forms that she stayed with it through, you know, not just stinky smells. And through that, her wish was that the difficult people, the difficult group, the military, may become her ally. May they sit down and have tea. And if not tea, then coffee. You know, always willing to show up. Always willing to see another way in. I want to thank her. Lady of no fear. And the same thing with the story of how Metta birthed. Metta birthed as an antidote to fear. The monks freaked out. Ah! I'm scared. It must be the wrong place to practice. Wrong date. Wrong teacher. Wrong something. Fear and doubt. Ah, antidote to fear. So that's the beginning. Then there's the blessings of metta. And the blessings of metta are outlined by the Buddha in a text called the Anguttara Nikaya, or the Numbered Discourses. It says, On one occasion, the Blessed One, the Buddha, was living near Savati at a at a monastery of a great um, non-monastic supporter named Anapindika. And he was with a group of practitioners. And he offered the blessings of metta. This is what happens when metta becomes fully mature. And so we have our handout of the way it's been passed down. There are many different translations. I'm going to offer a couple. And in fact, the way that I memorize these are slightly different than the handout that Spirit Rock now offers. So, you know, we're continually translating and retranslating these teachings. It's what speaks to our heart. The way that I learned it was, people who practice metta sleep peacefully, wake peacefully, and have peaceful dreams. People love them. Devas love them. Devas will protect them. Poison and fire and weapons won't harm them. Their faces are clear. Their minds are serene. They die unconfused. And should they happen to be reborn, it's in heavenly realms. And I always think of Sylvia when I say it to myself. Because um, myself and also yourselves have the honor of being part of a lineage, if you should so choose to feel connected with that. And the lineage is this. Sayadaw Upandita, great Burmese master, taught this loving-kindness practice to Sharon Salzberg, one of the first founding teachers in the West of our form of meditation. Sharon Salzberg taught it to Sylvia Borstein. Sylvia Borstein Uh, particularly trained Donald and myself to teach these practices. You are now practicing these practices. We're all part of the same line, of the same family. And if we kept going back, that line would go back to the Buddha. So when I first started practicing, Sylvia told me the story about how when she first started practicing, Sharon 
told her the story about how when she first started practicing, Sayada Upandita told her that she should memorize the 11 benefits. And then Sharon suggested to Sylvia that she memorize the 11 benefits. And then Sylvia suggested to me. And now I'm suggesting to you, if it brings you joy and inspiration, you might memorize the 11 benefits. I want to be really clear that I'm not asking you to believe anything in these 11 benefits blindly. They are for inspiration. They are for reflection. They are for examination. They are for cultivating joy. I also feel that it's important for us to understand that the 11 benefits of metta are benefits when metta is fully mature when it's fully awake. And I think that this is another piece in addressing that question this morning uh, with the comparison of, you know, but, but I'm not manifesting like Aung San Suu Kyi, you know. I'm not like her. I'm comparing myself to her. Is it enough? I love it that when Sylvia was teaching this afternoon, what was she saying? She's saying, it's enough. Be bold. Have confidence. We can do this. You know, the Buddha said he wouldn't teach these practices if we, it wasn't possible for us to understand, each in our own way. So what we're talking about with the 11 benefits are mature metta, fruition metta, fully cultivated metta. So we have two sides here. On one side, we have the cultivation of these practices. And on the other side, we have the fruition of these practices. But here's the good news. Even though it sounds like two, it's not two. It's actually two continuums. And they merge and they overlap because we cultivate, we cultivate, and then all of a sudden there's a maturation. How many times have I said to some of you these last few days I've been meeting with, ah, metta is maturing. Metta is maturing. Starting to be some fruition. And then we digest that, we integrate that, we manifest it, and then we keep cultivating all the way until 100% awake 100% of the time. So we don't have to wait to experience some of these benefits. And you might think, some of these benefits, what do you mean, fire and poison and weapons? You know, well, um, I'm not asking you to believe anything. In the monastic communities that I've trained among and learned from, I've heard some pretty outrageous stories about what's possible in the force of metta. So we'll see. We'll keep practicing. So what I want to bring in is my current favorite translation and commentary on these 11 benefits. And it's from a teacher called Venerable Acharya Buddharakita. Now, Venerable Buddharakita is the founder and president of the Mahabodhi Society in India. There are many branch monasteries, some of which I've practiced in. And he's not just an internationally recognized meditation master and scholar, but he's really well known for his humanitarian efforts. So it's very much about a depth of practice, a depth of scholarship, and real service in the world. Very inspiring um, teacher. Here's a quote by Venerable Buddha Rakita about the difference between cultivation metta and awakened metta. He says, universal love leading to the liberation of mind signifies absorption based on meditation on metta. 
Since metta liberates the mind from the bondage of hatred and anger, selfishness, greed, and delusion, it constitutes a state of liberation. Every time one practices metta for however short a period, one enjoys a measure of freedom of mind. Oh, good news. There's one more line to it, though. Measureless freedom of mind, however, is to be expected only when metta is fully developed into full concentration. And that's part of why we keep bookmarking the concentration aspect of this teaching, because we've all experienced a measure of freedom of mind here, no matter how short. And as we develop the training, measureless, measureless. So the way that I want to approach this teaching is not actually to unpack the sleep peacefully, wake peacefully, have peaceful dreams, but to explore how we do this practice. There are eight aspects of how we develop this practice that create those benefits. So this is the translation, the beginning of the translation of the blessings of metta by Venerable Buddha And you're going to notice eight ways. And you're not going to catch them all, and that's okay, because we're going to go through them. Friends, when universal love leading to the liberation of mind is ardently practiced, uh, developed, unrelentingly resorted to, used as one's vehicle, made the foundation of one's life, fully established, well-consolidated, and protected, then, then, these 11 blessings may be expected. Okay? You ready for this? I've never taught this before. I've never heard anybody teach this before. It's not a well-known commentary. I'm so inspired by his practice and his work, I want to bring it out. So the way we're going to explore it is this, is go through each of them, and then each of them will have an accompanying story. It's just you know, kind of flesh it out a little bit, and then we'll go back and look at what are we doing here. So the first one, practiced. So this is from Venerable. Practiced is meant the ardent practice of metta, not as a mere intellectual exercise, but by committing oneself wholeheartedly to it and making it one's guiding philosophy, something which conditions one's attitudes, outlook, and conduct. So I don't need to tell you that this is not an intellectual exercise. You know. You know. You know it's so much more than that. And the example that I want to bring in is an example at the cultivation level of loving kindness and uh, cultivation in action individually and at a community level. And it's the example of um, Dr. King. And... He won the Nobel Peace Prize in 1964 for his work. And this is from his talk, it's fairly well known, The Role of the Church in Facing the Nation's Chief Moral Dilemma. And he's speaking to Southern clergy who are white uh, to try to get them to transform into allies for the desegregation work. Okay. He says... But in the end, in the end, is reconciliation. The end is redemption. The end is the creation of the beloved community. 
It is this type of spirit and this type of love that can transform opposers into friends. The type of love that I stress here is not eros, some sort of romantic love, not philia, sort of um, reciprocity of love between personal friends, but it is agape. It It is agape, which seeks nothing in return. It is the overflowing love, which is the understanding of goodwill for all people. It is the love of God working in the lives of men. This is the love that may well be the salvation for our civilization. So we're working here with practiced. Here we are all day practicing with our difficult person. Are they as difficult as they were at the beginning? I bet there's been so many cycles, and I heard from you how many cycles there's been. For some of you, it started out easy, and you were surprised. It's like, oh, maybe I should choose somebody more difficult. And for some of you, it was so hard. At first, it felt impossible. These cycles of purification, where we can move into this awakened love, and then we move back into a cycle of attachment, and I want them to change so they'll be less difficult. And I bet some of us were working with a difficult group as our difficult person. And I know that some of us were working with a difficult aspect of ourselves as the difficult person. It all merges together when we practice. Secondly, developed. Uh, Venerable Buddha Akita. Developed is implied by the various processes of inner culture and mental integration affected by the practice of meditation on universal love. The Buddha taught that the entire mental world is developed by the practice of meditation on universal love, leading to the mind's liberation and the transformation of the personality. So the person that I want to bring in to illuminate this, uh, again, another one of my heroes, uh, and, I want to, and this is an example of this metta uh, developed at a fruition level, at an awakened level of some way or another. It's Deepama. So Deepama, uh, no longer alive. She grew up in India, in Calcutta. She lived for a long time in Rangoon, Burma. Burma. Uh, her husband worked there. And in her early years, her young years of life, she had, her love was very unbalanced. And it was filled with clinging. It was filled with codependence. She loved her family and she really wanted to take care of them. And it would get a little out of whack. I'm sure nobody's ever experienced that. She had another sorrow in her life and it was the sorrow of being unable to conceive a child. Amazing thing happened for her after 20 years of being unable to conceive a child. She actually had several children. And two of those children, when they were young, died. Heartbreaking. We know this. And then her husband came home one day and he said, you know, I'm not feeling so good. And she said, oh, maybe under the weather. And a few hours later, he had a heart attack and passed away at her feet. And she was heartbroken with grief. So heartbroken that she, for a while, was unable to function and she lost her health. She became quite ill, and they couldn't figure out what was going on. It's the illness of grief, 
and of loss. This was long before MBSR, mindfulness-based stress reduction, which when it began, you know, John Kabat-Zinn was asking for volunteers, for participants. He said, give me the ones that no one can heal in the hospitals and let's see what this mindfulness can do. Someone suggested to Deepama that she go to the meditation center as a last resort. It was the last thing the community can think of to save her heart and maybe her life. And so she went. And amazingly, she experienced a rapid transformation of a deepening of concentration that led to a profound series of awakenings. So this is a quote about how her, tra- her personality transformed through the development of practice, of concentration, and she was well known for her metta. Those who knew Deepama were fascinated by her transformation. Almost overnight, she had changed from a sickly, dependent, grief-stricken woman into a healthy, independent, radiant being. This is what Deepama said about her transformation. You have seen me. I was disheartened and broken down due to the loss of my husband and children and due to disease. I suffered so much. I couldn't walk properly. But now how are you finding me? All my disease is gone. I am refreshed and there is nothing in my mind. There is no sorrow, no grief. Actually, I am quite happy. If you come to meditate, you will also be happy. There is no magic. Only follow the instructions. I'll take it. So this is from Jack Engler. He's a researcher, meditator, student of Deepama. And he's talking about how um, Deepama's expression of metta didn't just change her personality, it actually changed collective personalities. This is one of many stories about her changing collectives through her own awakening and transformation of personality. He said, when Deepama first moved into her apartment complex, it was pretty noisy. It was a contentious place with a lot of bickering, arguing, and yelling among the tenants, amplified by the open courtyard. Everyone knew everyone else's business because it was being shouted back and forth all the time. Within six months of her moving in, the whole place had quieted down and people were starting to get along with each other for the first time. Her presence and the way she dealt with people, quietly, calmly, gently, treating them with kindness and respect, setting limits and challenging their behavior when necessary, but out of concern for everyone's welfare, not out of anger or the simple desire for her personal comfort. It set an example. It made it impossible to carry on in that angry, contentious way as they had before. It was the simple force of her presence, You didn't act like that around her. You just couldn't. You just couldn't. I feel like we're kind of doing that for each other here in a quiet way. It's like there's just some way that, well, we see it. We all have our ways we act out, right, with our family and our friends and in the world. And 
We're just not acting out that way here. It's the collective presence of metta that's bringing it out in us. And how many of you have experienced and shared about your own transformations of personalities here, this week? Core beliefs revealed, a shift in how you always looked at the world. It's happening here, developed. Another thing that's happening here is the third quality, unrelentingly resorted to. (laughs) I like that word, unrelentingly. So, Buddha emphasizes repeated practice of metta through all one's waking hours, in deed, word, and thought, maintaining the tempo of metta awareness throughout. Repeated action means the generation of power. Okay, so that's what we're doing here. And uh, I heard from you that some of you were a little intimidated, understandably, when the first afternoon I mentioned that in the full expression of the training of this metta practice, the phrases are 24-7. And maybe they're not happening in some distinct way while we're sleeping. So every waking moment is understandably intimidating. But I've also heard from some of you how this momentum throughout one's waking hours, the phrases just develop a momentum of their own. And you discover, oh, I'm moving around in between. And it's not the full phrase. It's just a single word. Or some of you are starting to share, it's not even the phrases at all anymore. It's that meta-awareness, that robustness of the energy that is, you know, just constantly available. So it's a both and. It's so beautiful. In those moments when it's available, drink it in. So we've got practice developed, unrelentingly resorted to. The fourth one is used as one's vehicle. Venerable Buddha Used as one's vehicle signifies a total commitment to the ideal of metta as a valid method for the solution of interpersonal problems. Ah, this is important, right? As well as an instrument for spiritual growth. So now we're going to look at the interpersonal problems piece. And the example that I want to bring in is um, uh, a new colleague and and hopefully a, a developing friendship in my life. It's It's somebody that I just met for the first time about eight months ago. And eight months ago in June, down in Southern California, at uh, Thich Nhat Hanh's monastery down there, there was a wonderful Buddhist teacher's conference. It was an international Buddhist teacher's conference. We have those from time to time. What made this one special was it was a gathering of teachers that were between the ages of 30 and 50. So it was a next-generation teacher's conference. Uh, And so we came together to talk as a community of our generation about, you know, teaching in the cultural context of our times, at our age, uh, some of the transitions that are going to be needing to happen in our communities to support some of the founding teachers uh, moving into retirement and taking on that responsibility. Uh, Really interesting conversations. About 70 of us there. 
And one of many people that I really connected with there was a woman, uh, her, her teaching name is Vimla Sara. Her Western name is Dr. Valerie Mason John. So she's British of African descent, currently living in British Columbia. And uh, we share some things in common uh, in terms of, of our training and our passions about teaching. And in addition to being a teacher, she's a, um, she's a writer. So she has a new book that's coming out, uh, particularly her passion around weaving recovery with Dharma, which is also a passion of mine. She's written a bunch of plays. She's an actress. You know, just a very creative person. Really hard past. Really painful past. And so we talked a little bit about that. And she talked with me about how loving kindness saved her life. And I talked with her about how I felt like loving kindness saved my life. And recently she sent me a public talk that she did. And I wanted to share a little bit of it. Because it's this piece about interpersonal problems and an instrument for spiritual growth. So one of the ways that she talks about in her teaching that loving kindness saved her life, it made her stop believing what she calls her stinking thinking. Do you have any of that stinking thinking? And specifically, she was talking about bullying thoughts about herself. We've been talking about this as the judgmental or comparing mind. She's calling it bullying thoughts about herself. Uh, in the relationship that it's internalized from external bullying that she experienced in her youth. And that that kind of internal self-destruction led to a lot of destructive behaviors in her young adulthood. Her story is an inspiration to me because by stopping that inner war through the practice of loving-kindness, she was able to experience recovery and long-term recovery from addictions to drugs, food, alcohol, and sex. That's a huge process. And also been able to dedicate her life to service. And one of the many things that she does is she works with bullying in schools. And she goes into schools and she tells her story. And she talks about loving kindness. And she talks about the stinking thinking. And how to prevent internal and external bullying. She says, once we stop the stinking thinking, which makes our lives a living hell, as we all know here, and replace it with thoughts of loving kindness, it looks more like this. It's good enough. You are okay. You are beautiful. You are unique, she says. And then she says, then we have the courage and internal resources to speak the truth and to make changes in interpersonal problems and even at national level conflicts. This is one person. You are one person. This is what we're doing. And how many of us here are practicing and we go through these cycles of purification where the interpersonal problem comes to the foreground and it's our muse. And first we're judging them and then we're judging ourselves because they feed each other. And then we bring in the forgiveness, the compassion, the equanimity, the metta. And that thinking, stinking thinking starts to decrease. And the love starts to flow. And then we notice that the relationship with whoever we were judging or having problems with is already starting to transform internally. And then the great 
test of all this is we get to go out and uh, do the advanced practice. This might feel like advanced practice, it is. But uh, the world. So the fifth one, made the foundation of one's life. Venerable Buddha Akita is making metta the basis of one's existence in all respects. It becomes the chief resort, the haven, the refuge of one's life, making one's refuge in Dhamma a reality. So I wanted to bring in yet another Nobel Peace Prize winner and talk about fruition level, both internally and collectively, His Holiness the Dalai Lama. And when, is very famous when he's been asked, how do you work with your enemies? The two things really come to the foreground in my mind. One is that phrase that he says with that little smile that he has, my good friend, the enemy. And the enemy, of course, has killed and tortured and imprisoned and, you know, done tremendous harm to a culture. My good friend. And sometimes when he's asked about, well, how do you practice with your enemies? Uh, You know, how do you work with not letting your anger take over your actions? He says, my pure motivation is my protection. What is pure motivation? Intention. Intention is what's fueling this metta. For him, it's compassion. We know it's flavors of the same awake mind, heart. My pure motivation, this intention, is my protection. And we've been experiencing that here. And we've been taking refuge here moment by moment, over and over again, in a myriad of different ways. One more little quote from him that always makes me smile. Be kind whenever possible. It is always possible. So sixth, fully established, venerable, says, fully established refers to a life that is firmly rooted in metta, has anchorage in metta under all circumstances. All circumstances. I just switched the story uh, this week that I want to share the forward edge of my teaching practice is going to be not crying while I share this because um, it's personal to me. Um, So there's a a practitioner who comes to Spirit Rock here uh, from time to time And uh, she sat the Transforming Judgmental Mind Retreat with Donald and I. And so what that means about her that's good for us to know is that, uh, as Donald said earlier, in the Transforming Judgmental Mind curriculum or um, program for the retreat, there are two tracks. And one is taking this internal bullying, this stinking thinking called judgments, and really going deeply into them, exploring, investigating the somatic level, really going into that. That's one track. But the other track is that, um, I think for both of us, it's the retreat that isn't actually a metta retreat, but that we teach more metta and 
all of the awakened states of mind, compassion, forgiveness, joy, gratitude, equanimity, all in that retreat. And so she's had this training, you know, and has continued with this training. And so I, this got forwarded to me through several people. It was written on December 26, 2013. Uh, her name is Ilana. She lives in L.A. right now. She's a, um, she's a psychiatrist, and she works through UCLA down there. And she has a website and a blog. And the week before December 26, she had written in her blog how the world is ruled by love. And this beautiful article about how the world is ruled by love. This is a week later, December 26th. Um, And I'm going to read the title of her piece, even though it has a four-letter word in it, just out of respect for how intense this is. And, and, we've, and this is, we all have experienced what, she, um, what she's talking about, you know, either ourselves or someone we love. So this title of this article is, Love is dot, 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 parentheses, holy shit, I have cancer. Okay. She's like 35 years old. Love is when a week ago I go to the ER at UCLA where I work for a cough and a feeling that something isn't right. And even though my complaints are mild, I'm brought right in and treated respectfully. They did some tests, and she has lymphoma. And it's serious. It's one of the rare forms. Love is when my friend Maria comes to the ER to be with me and then shares some tea at Starbucks when I'm discharged, even though it's midnight, and she's a resident in anesthesiology, and probably had to be up at 6 a.m. the next day. Love is when my boyfriend Peter has not left my side for a single night and has been sleeping on a mini arrow bed, even though he's 6'3", and usually complains about sleeping on anything smaller than a California king. Love is when my parents immediately fly to L.A. from the Bay Area to be with me in the hospital. My mom, a pathologist herself, even calls the lab directly to read the slides with the attending pathologist. Love is when every single staff person in the hospital, from nursing to care management to the custodians, treat me kindly and compassionately. Love is when I'm visiting with one of the doctors and I start crying that I will never be able to have children because of the chemo I'm about to undergo. She really wants a child. And the doctor sits down next to me on the hospital bed and holds my hand with tears in her own eyes and says, nothing is 100%. Love is when knowing my long hair, she has this beautiful long brown hair, Knowing when my long hair will soon fall out, I decide to have a stylist come to the hospital to preemptively cut my hair so it can be used for a wig. He comes on Sunday evening after a full day of work, the night before he's supposed to leave town for a holiday. He gives me an awesome haircut. He refuses to accept any payment. Love is when my former roommate and best friend from medical school, Julie, offers to cut her own long, dark hair in solidarity and as a contribution to my wig. Love is when I feel an urgent desire to get well so I can continue doing the work I am meant to do 
through my connections with patients, promoting a positive and integrative view of psychiatry, a field I care so much for. I will get well for me, but I will get well for you too. Love is when I realize my passion for life far supersedes my fear of this illness or its treatment. Love is when I know this cancer will hurt and it will make me sick, but it will not kill me. Love is too strong not to live for. I am here for love. Fully established. All circumstances. I know how many of us in this room have gone through an illness, many cancer, and I know how many of us in this room have cared for our loved ones. All circumstances. Well consolidated. This is number seven. (laughs) It means one is so habituated to metta that one remains effortlessly immersed in it, both in meditation as well as in one's day-to-day conduct. Definitely the training we're doing here. So this is a story about metta and a snake. Comes from the Thai forest tradition. There's so many stories in the Thai forest tradition about metta and snakes. (laughs) Really. Uh, And some of them are so outrageous that I wouldn't dare tell them it's spirit rock. (laughs) Although I was tempted. So this one is probably one that you can digest, or at least I hope so. It's about Ajahn Fuang one of our great elders, late elders in the tradition. And it's told by his student, the, um, the master in his own right, uh, Tanisaro Bhikkhu, or Tanjef. Here's the story. Ajahn Fuang, my teacher, once discovered that a snake had moved into his room. Every time he entered the room, he saw the snake slip into a narrow space behind a storage cabinet. And even though he tried leaving the door to the room open during the daytime, the snake wasn't willing to leave. So for three days, they lived together. He was very careful not to startle the snake or make it feel threatened by by his presence. But finally, on the evening of the third day, as he was sitting in meditation, he addressed the snake quietly in his mind. He said, look here, it's not that I don't like you. I don't have any bad feelings for you. But our minds work in different ways. It'd be very easy for there to be a misunderstanding between us. (laughs) Now, there are lots of places out in the woods where you can live without the uneasiness of living with me. And as he sat there, spreading thoughts of metta to the snake, the snake left. The end. You know, so first he tried the conduct and day-to-day conduct with the metta for the snake, and then he went into meditation and continued the metta for the snake, and the combination uh, got the result he was looking for. We don't need a snake. We're doing that with our own minds. It's like something comes in and we go, hmm, you know, it'd be easy for there to be a misunderstanding. Let's bring some friendliness. It's not that I don't like you. I'm not fighting with you, whatever your thing is. It's just like, how are we going to live together? How are we going to get along? It's no different than the meta story. That which was a hindrance becomes an ally. 
Lastly, perfected. Venerable. Perfected indicates a mode of completeness through total adherence and development, leading to that fully integrated state in which one enjoys perfect well-being and spiritual um, strength, indicated by the passage detailing the 11 benefits of metta. Okay? So when it's protected, for per, <laughs> perfected, the 11 benefits shine forth in their maturity. So now I'm going to read the whole sutta on the 11 benefits as translated by Venerable Buddha Rakita. And you'll notice that the benefits are translated slightly differently. Friends, when universal love leading to the liberation of mind is ardently practiced, developed, unrelentlessly resorted to, used as one's vehicle, made the foundation of one's life, fully established, well-consolidated, and perfected, these 11 blessings may be expected. One sleeps happily, one wakes happily, one does not suffer bad dreams. One is dear to human beings, one is dear to non-human beings. The gods protect one. No fire or poison or weapon harms one. One's mind gets quickly concentrated, the expression on one's face is serene, one dies unperturbed. And even if one fails to attain higher states, one will at least reach the state of the Brahma world. And then he repeats the eight qualities again. Can you bear with me? Just so we do the whole sutta. Friends, when universal love leading to liberation of mind is ardently practiced, developed, unrelentlessly resorted to, used as one's vehicle, made the foundation of one's life, fully established, well-consolidated and perfected, then these 11 blessings may be expected. So out of that, the invitation is to reflect on and develop the how of the eight practices in your own heart and life in ordinary and extraordinary ways. So let's go back to the end of the story of how metta as a practice and a teaching was birthed through the Buddha, right? We said he had taught his monastic friends, his his students, loving kindness. The devas had become allies. The story did not end just with those monastics having a good retreat and being supported by the devas. The story actually ends that 500 practitioners um, were fully awakened, 100%. The 11 benefits of metta were manifest. Now I can actually say the end. So... A closing quote or two here, um, first from Venerable Buddha Akita. Let not metta be mistaken as a mere sentiment. It is the power of the strong. If the leaders from different walks of life were to give metta a fair trial, no principle or guideline to action would be found to possess greater efficiency or fruitfulness in all spheres. If humanity decides to substitute metta as a policy for action in the face of aggression and ill will, the world will turn into a veritable abode of peace. 
For only when an individual shall have peace within themselves and boundless goodwill for others, that peace in the world will become real and endearing. And it's interesting, as I was kind of completing my own internal process of of preparing this talk, I actually did it quite some time ago because I was excited about the topic. So I was working on this at the end of November, and it was complete, and I was like, well, what do I want to close with? And that came to me so strongly. I really want to close with the words of Nelson Mandela. You know? And it was right when he was in his dying process, and I didn't know it. You know? Um, so I want to close with words from Nelson Mandela. Um, you know, is an acknowledgement of uh, the merit that he's offered us as a global community and the force of his life, um, and that the merit of what we're cultivating here will continue that work. He says, there's no passion to be found in settling for a life that is less than the one you are capable of living. And then I was... I have to say I was personally greatly moved by the preaching of, yeah, the preaching of President Barack Obama at his memorial, at Nelson Mandela's memorial. So I just want to say one line from that in in homage. President Obama says, he changed laws, but he also changed hearts. So that's what I have to offer for our reflection. May we experience the benefits in their ordinary and extraordinary manifestations. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.